<laughs> if you already know Drake or you already been on Drake's TikTok or his lives or his Sunday Zooms, which will be once a month now. <laughs> Did you know? Now you know. <laughs> you know whose voice this is. It's Shan from She Gets It Pod. So while you're listening to Everything Culture with an A, not a die, check out She Gets It pod all right i know i'm the one with the little boo me on there that's me all right new season new season 22 giving y'all encouragement motivation and a real insight in the things that i think about on a daily but i'm saying them out loud to y'all so check me out on she gets a pod on your favorite podcast app and also find me and the rest of my podcast on shambypodden.com. Now, I hope you're enjoying this show with everything culture. Hey, Drake. I'll let you have your mic back now. Bye. What was, and I'm going to come back, what was some experiences that you would never forget? Like, what's one that stand out that was most impactful for you in court? Uh, I can tell you one. Um, When I was a lawyer, um, we had a case where... um, I was asked at the last minute to do a jury trial um, before uh, this guy had only done a couple of hearings in front of him, um, Judge Wren. And uh, <laughs> you might you might remember this, but uh, it, it ended up being... I wondered if that was the one you were thinking about. <laughs> yes. In fact, I saw Dad's attorney this week and uh, uh, congratulated him. And, uh, but, but it was one of these cases where... Uh, no, no doubt in probably anybody's mind that the mom's parental rights should be uh, terminated. But you had a a dad who wanted to raise his kid. Uh, no doubt uh, the child was in a wonderful foster home. And it was, I, on one hand, I was kind of looking at the case like, oh, this is a loss for us. But it was really, uh, I think it was Judge Rend who, kind of addressed CPS and, and outside of the presence of the jury was like, you know, asking, but why are you trying to terminate his right? What did he do? Patience to these false accusations. They faking the shake because the money you're making bricks. Money on the dresser, drive a compressor, top notch. Get the most. Absolutely. And just quickly to introduce <laughs> both you all, um, you know, we have Judge Frank Rand um, was a family law court judge, correct? And correct. how long were you correct. a judge? I'm going to guess in total about 12 years. Wow. wow. I've got to do the math. Yeah, I think it was about 12. And 98. Yeah. And we have Judge Michael Schneider, which was a juvenile juvenile judge, um, both out of Harris County. And how long were you a judge? Um, oh, about 14 years. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And key back on, I want to make sure people understand the work you're being a judge. And why did y'all get into the work or get into like, what is it planned? Was it something in part of your heart? It was just something that came about. Well, yeah, so uh, when I first got out of law school, it wasn't clear that I was even going to practice law. I was doing other stuff that was fun, and uh, 
I didn't even know that there existed a th such a thing as a child protective uh, division at the county attorney's office. I, for a number of reasons, I really wasn't interested in going to the DA's office, but I kind of wanted to, if I was going to be a lawyer, try some cases. And uh, I heard that there was this division at our, our county attorney's office that uh, represented CPS, knew nothing about them. I went into that division and um, I really, really loved it. And um, uh, I was there about maybe six or so years into it. One of the judges approached me and said, I think I'm going to retire. And if uh, whoever wins the primary is someone I think is uh, capable of doing this job, I might even quit a little early. So I uh, decided to throw my, my name in and um, ended up winning the primary and then getting a call a couple of days later going, where's your packet? Turn in your packet. You know, Judge Ellis just resigned. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't get into even being a, a lawyer, really even contemplating being a judge. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Lovely. Thank you. Judge Ryan, how about yourself? Well, I, I think, to be honest, I, I kind of thought about what it would be like to be a judge maybe even back in law school so the but it was never an overwhelming ambition I, when i finished law school and and i'm older I, I finished law school in 1976 and worked for a law firm for almost five years and then got a job working in houston i, I don't know if you know for the at the astrodome for the old houston sports association mm -hmm. and i was there 17 years and uh i, I was kind of thinking gosh 17 years can i what am I going to do, you know, with the rest of my life? And Judge Linda Motherall was a family court judge and had a, a vacancy as a uh, for an associate judge. And so she asked me if I'd be interested in doing it, and I said I would be. I think to her surprise and somewhat to my own surprise, I said yes. So I was an associate judge for about three years and then a, a district judge for nine for a total of 12. But I, I've... I've it just be I hoped it would be a good way to give back and uh, and yeah that was sort of my somewhat my motive and uh, the when judge Motherall I was her associate judge I heard all of her CPS cases and so that's what got me involved but then when I became a district judge I, I kept hearing a lot of and I'm gonna get on top of it on the CPS matter there are a lot of changes happening I think um, but one of the things that always bothered me when you talk about culture is there was sort of a, I always felt like there was a, a I, hey, I want to be careful about how I say this, but maybe a not understanding of poverty or not understanding poor people or not understanding that the mere fact that you have three children in a bedroom doesn't mean there's abuse and that's not neglect. Right. And occasionally I would have CPS workers, I could tell by their testimony, horrified that three or four kids were in, in one bedroom. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't mean there's not love in that family. And uh, so the uh, anyway, so it, it, it really bothered me sometimes that reaction. Now, unfortunately, since the rate of poverty, the incidence of poverty is greater among African-Americans or among single family households in general, that then tended to, to they tended to get crossways with CPS in a more frequent basis. I think the I was interesting reading just uh, last night uh, an article uh, about the man who started Project Row Houses, 
And uh, he grew up, I think he said one of 13 children, and they were sharecroppers. But he just praised his mother and the love and the discipline that she had for those children. But I, I, he didn't say, but I guarantee they weren't living in a large home. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. And so the, uh, and, you know, now he's a very well-respected artist. And yet, and, and the article was very insightful, but, but I was struck by just sort of the, the praise and his, his childhood was a happy childhood. Mm. And not a lot of things, not a lot of stuff, but, but a good childhood. And so that kind of struck me. And I just happened to read that last night's article about him. And so it may that, not that be is rich. Of, it may not be rich financially, but it's rich in love. It's only that's exactly that was sort of what he was saying. And and mm. just to, and clear expectations among the kids, you know, to work hard, you know, and to and to be, behave. He said, My mother made us behave. But the uh and again, I, I just sometimes that is one of my was when I was a judge, one of the things I tried to watch out for um, is this is this merely the fact that it's poverty or is it do we get to actual abuse that I don't think or, 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 or real neglect. Thank you. Thank you. And when I say thank you, I'm thanking y'all both for your time and your service as well. Um, as my experience being a caseworker and a um child advocate i've seen the work that both of you all have done i've been in your courts and i've been in many other courts as well and i can sincerely say that you both care i've seen that you actually listen to everyone as well to actually gather the information and it's like what i don't oh i can go i'm gonna go back to where judge Rand started because i want to go in and talk about the feelings and thoughts and experiences, but what Judge Wren was talking about with CPS, including poverty, that many people recognize and many people may not know. But even when I was a CPS caseworker, I've seen some of my coworkers, even in training, when I was going through BSD training, basic skills and development, I heard people say things like, well, it's, since they're poor, should they keep their kids? And me, in the, as a just a trainee coming out of college, my mouth was like, what do you mean? Me growing up poor and seeing what my parents experienced, I'm like, that does not give someone the right to do so. This is not going to be the best fit for you. Those are my, but I couldn't tell anybody <laughs> that, you know, I was young, at the, I was 22 at the time. And, right. you know, even with conversations where investigators is like, so when we go out to their home, we just bring the police with us, right? I'm like, why would you bring the police with you just to have a conversation with someone? As I tell you right now, you bring the police with you to have a conversation with me, just the first one, just to talk to me. Our, once again, you lose the respect right then and there. So yeah. I absolutely understand. So, so Judge Schneider, once again, Judge Schneider is so unique that we've seen him. All, if you may have seen his face recently on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, um, <laughs> some of the news stations around. Um, it, it's working with CPS and understanding removal and poverty. What are your thoughts about that? You know, your process just with removing children in the first place yeah look one of the reasons we have so many negative downstream consequences of cps involvement and what i mean take it to its extreme like kids who age out of the foster care system who have that high likelihood of ending up in the criminal justice system the cps system um, themselves of being homeless 
and I think a lot of that comes from um, removing more kids than are, are, are needed. I mean, I, I think that, and not, not that uh, a lot of families don't need help, but um, when you think about it, just like one of the reasons a prison can be so destructive is that it doesn't simulate real life. Mm -hmm. Having your kids in foster care where you, you visit them once a, uh, twice a, a month for an hour is not really a, a good, uh, it's not a great environment to learn if someone can parent. And if you could take care of more folks uh, in, in the house uh, or with fictive kin or relatives, um, I think that's just so underutilized. Um, and not just at the time of removal, but um, like I, I'm, uh, I'm lucky enough to be on the board of a nonprofit called uh, The Way Home Adoption. And the case mining that they do for these older kids to look for relatives is unbelievable. And it just makes me think this could be done by, I mean, that's one of the things that child advocates could do. Uh, or CPS themselves that have this sort of mining, especially, you know, when you have older kids who are 13 and 14, they're largely able to take care of themselves. And a mom who smokes weed has a, has a very different environment in that home as opposed to a mom who may be using drugs with a newborn. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so that's, and, and I have seen, um, you know, I, I was really glad to see about a little over two years ago, the Texas Supreme Court um, came down with a case called NRAI CJC, and they talk about uh, how strong the presumption is that parents and not non-parents um, are making the decisions in kids' lives about who has access to them. And I believe it was Justice Bland who wrote it, and there was a line in there that about, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but it essentially said, a child should not be removed from his parents just because a state district judge thinks there's a better placement. And I thought that was wonderful. Uh, you know, I'm serious. No, I, um, no, I know. That, that, you I know, know, we think of non-parents interfering, or I do, of like, you know, sort of the nosy grandparent or the uh, or CPS itself. But when you, I, I like that she included in non-parents who don't have a right, presumptively, to interfere in lives, that she included state district judges. It, that's awesome. Yeah. Hey. I actually totally agree. I mean, and, and the thing that always bothered me is I didn't always have better placements. In other words, right. you know, I, I didn't know exactly where these kids were going. Um, I know they were going, quote, in the custody of CPS, but I really didn't know where CPS was putting them. I mean, sometimes I did, but not always. And uh, I did have one case. Uh, Brandon, I don't know if you were there, when, but the, the children were actually abused in the foster home. Now, their home where they were living with their parents was not ideal. Uh, it, there were some problems, but they'd never been physically abused in that home. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, and so the, uh, again, I, they were not, I, I really think this was a, an example of maybe a, a, a class or economic. The, the mother was not real bright. Um, that, that is true, but she took care of her kids but they lived in sort of a, a, a motel type situation, which I realize is not ideal, but you know, they were not beaten. They were not, you know, um, and she did care for them. And so at any rate, it's always, it, so particularly, of course, I, I still agree with judge Bland. 
even if you think you've got a better placement, it, that's not reason enough to remove kids. It's a horrible, it's an awesome power the state has and a scary power <clears throat> to remove children from their home, from their parents. And it should be used very judiciously, very carefully. And that leads into, well, one, if is this the, is this the case that had maybe nine to 11 kiddos on it? That a bunch. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I don't remember how many exactly. Like I, was, I don't know uh, how. Many, if you remember certain cases, I remember. I remember these quite a majority of my families and kids. I keep in touch with quite a bit of them too, because um, I'm still a um I'm like a mentor through the um with the Hay Center. Um, yes. Yeah. So I still mentor through them. I got one of my. My first kid that I had um, as a caseworker when I was coming out of BSD, I'm still in his life. You know, he is 24, finally about to graduate from college. <laughs> so think about it. Wow, and, that's good. Yeah, been in his life since he was 11. And those type of experiences, it's stressful. First and foremost, when I'm saying when y'all are making those decisions, I've seen the side of CPS. Sometimes they know, sometimes they do not. Okay. I've had times where you know for my listeners i do a series about my cps stories and my cps tips and i just share i change the name i just share like little pseudo situations that may happen so people can understand what it looks like being an experience as a caseworker and i have one case where the kids had a little behavior issues and i wish this judge could have jumped on here because i know she'll remember this case um by paper, this parent should have had a rice terminated. Like it was, it was like this is her. I know the grounds have been the old grounds have been removed recently, if I'm not mistaken. But this was on grounds old. This was like the third time in care. Um, previous children been terminated before, so only thing is just that we just need best interest to say it. And I was like, uh, okay, let's see, let's give it some time. Volunteering out. Long story short, mother relapsed even halfway throughout the case, finished, worked out of service, relapsed again. And the mother made a statement to me on a phone call. I was upset. I, I, I try to remain professional, but if y'all, I, my facial I have a horrible poker face. And but <laughs> I remember being on the phone with her and I was kind of, I was upset. You know, that y'all would be probably ashamed to me, the things I was saying. I wasn't cursing, but I was like, like we were really relying on you to get your children back. Your kids are not doing the best in mm-hmm. care. These kids are going to be yeah. in juvenile detention to prison. Next thing we know, they and they're relying on you. And she said something that changed my view quite a bit. And I remember I was driving on six ten, and she said, "You know, Mr. Drake, if you you know if we know the tw- twelve steps, I've learned these twelve steps from back side to side. Relapse is a part of recovery." And I like, damn, she is right. That is that is the truth. And long story short, I remember the where well, I'm glad we kept going. Because once again, I'm a faith-based person. Um, that's my that's how I get through this work and through this time. But I remember to the point, like, judge would always look for us, okay, we're just waiting on you, Casa. We're just waiting on you, child advocates. Say it. And I remember one of the one day was out at an event and mother was calling a volunteer. I told the volunteer, hang up the phone. We're out for an event, relaxing, but we said to take it. The, the CPS ended up losing the kid. Didn't know where they placed him. Basically, the caseworker placed him somewhere and quit. That day, didn't turn two weeks notice or anything. No paperwork was put in, nothing. 
So and not all through the weekend, I called the supervisor thinking, oh, no big deal. When the supervisor said, we don't know where he's at, I flipped. I called the attorney. Oh, my gosh. I can't even think of his name right now. But he flipped all these emails going through all through that night. Email and we go into court Monday. We only reason we were able to find that child the time we found him because they the caregivers asked for a clothing voucher. That's it. Wow. And so those things happen. I will say that. Well, you know, philosophically, and I know Judge Snyder and I have had this conversation, the law was written to basically handle cases of physical and sexual abuse. But the vast majority of CPS cases involve parents with drug and alcohol problems. And so do we maybe need to treat them differently, have a different timeline? Because on the one hand, it's good the legislature put a quick timeline if there's so kids wouldn't be in limbo forever if their parents were sexually or physically abusing them. But drug abuse and alcohol abuse is a whole different game, in my opinion. And kids can bond. They don't, they're not necessarily abused if the parent has a drug or alcohol problem. It can lead to abuse. I, I don't doubt that. But we live in a, a, a state or a society that doesn't offer great rehab programs. And it's tough. And as you said, you're you're. Client pointed out that relapse is part of recovery, and therefore you've got all the timing situation, the timelines, and how long they can be extended, and um, and and they're just two different. Uh, I don't know. They need to be treated differently, in my opinion. I mean, and they all need to be treated individually. There's not one cookie cutter solution for any of this, and that's you know difficult because the law does have some generalities, but the. Uh, but basically, you know, if you've got a parent who occasionally relapses, but is bonded to the kids and holds a job and you know, isn't allowing dangerous people into the home, that's different than the addict who, for the drugs, you know, might abuse their kids or allow their children to be abused. So each each facts are so different. But but again, it, it's challenging when you have such a, a huge percentage of the cases that are alcohol drug abuse related okay. I, I i agree um and I, I would maybe even take it a, a step further and say something that isn't always you know uh received well but i first i, I don't disagree with any of that um and and i also think that one of the big problems and this is a nationwide problem um is that a lot of uh, judges and CPS workers and uh, attorneys who deal with these cases um, don't understand the way drugs and the brain interact. Mm -hmm. And there are a ton of people who, uh, in fact, the majority of people who use even the most dangerous drugs that we know of never actually meet the criteria for a DSM-5 um, <clears throat> diagnosis of substance use disorder. Um, those that do, most of them who, who quit, quit on their own without any sort of rehab at all. Mm. And the, the, the research is there. I mean, it, it's, it's very clear. And yet like even expressing that notion uh, that, you know, sometimes, um, I, well, like judge Rand was talking about, you don't want the cookie cutter, um, situation. Um, there are people who um, continue to use and may not even consider it a, a relapse. It's just they're different types of recovery. And, you know, for some people, um, 
abstaining from drugs completely or, or trying to is not for them. Um, now, when you balance that with having kids in the home, that can take it to a different level. But, you know, a lot of the consequences in our systems, whether it's CPS or the criminal justice system, are actually much worse than the drugs themselves. Um, and we know people can function and raise kids with the most dangerous drugs around because millions do it with alcohol. And there are very few drugs that are more dangerous than alcohol. Mm, oh, a mouthful right there from both of y'all. Um, because thinking outside the box and changing the system, I believe that's absolutely needed. Um, when I was coming through, when I was at CPS, I was taught to be strict, stern, this how it would be. Um, I'll talk about this on other episodes, but when I say I was a caseworker, because I worked with some families, I was so stressed out, I couldn't move my neck sometime because I had disagreed with my supervisor's um, decision. It, I was threatened to be written up quite often because I was like, do you think that's actually better for the children? Um, yeah. And once again, I, I share some of my stories I've told before, which I've asked some very, some very, um, Southpaw uh, or unusual recommendations that you would never hear from caseworkers, such as I recommended a kid to go visit his mother in while she was in prison, and and I was like because this kid is legit flipping out in his home, thinking his mother is going to be unalived. Okay, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I said he needed, and it made such a difference in his behavior afterwards. And I was surprised the judge approved it, but hey, we went with it. Um, but how old was the kid? He was nine. It was wow. Nine. It was young, and but whew, we'll talk. We'll I'll talk about that in a second because once again, I since I started doing my CPS stories and experiences, I've taken some time and looked up some of my kids and see you know Facebook. You can gather anyone, and he was raised in a very gang related family. Um, he wasn't abused, but his his cousins that were in the home were abused, so they had to remove all the children. But it was the system being that it was a lot that. Once again, that's something we can go in detail about once again throughout the series. But it's so much you can do. But when I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about uh, ASPA, the Adoption and Safe Family Act. Um, that, how do you all feel about that? I know when that went to effect, a lot of changes came from um, the act being put in place for CPS as far as removing children and adoption. What, what specifically uh, are you referring to? As far as when it was signed into law, um, a lot of people look want to re basically revoke it or remove yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Uh, because it it put that timeline into effect. Because when I was going through training, it was always told like kids were just in care lingering while parents could the kids would drop well parents would drop it in and dropping out of the case. And the main focus of it was to find more permanency for the children in care. That was the goal. Well, I, there's still a lot of kids. I, don't, I think it's gotten better, but it's still a lot of kids, especially specific kids. If we want to talk about, about disproportionality, that are still stuck in care. We basically removed the parental rights, and now we just don't have anywhere for them to go. And we have a whole new court, shout out to Judge Katrina Griffith, that here just PMC cases in Harris County. I'm, and the thing is, it's not just a Harris County thing. This is across the nation. I'm in Seattle, Washington. The same issue is up here. There is a great amount of children in CPS custody and without and parental rights been terminated and now they're lingering in care. And a lot of folks, how, like, and I'm loving that you're saying that 
the timeline need to be adjusted, especially how this is going to affect in the mid nine, mid to late nineties, and it's twenty twenty two. It's almost thirty years now. Yeah, I think in Texas it may have gone into effect in ninety eight, something like that. Um, but yeah, so I remember I first started hearing or dealing with CPS cases as a lawyer in nineteen ninety nine, and um, right. the PMC dockets were just some of them were just crazy because you had all these cases where instead of terminating or or whatever they would PMC to the agency or even long you know cases where they had been gone on in the TMC the temporary stage for years um, and so um, I think that that has uh, I think that's a good goal to have um, in, in so many cases you know way before the first year that there's not going to be reunification um, but uh, there has to be a way to give more time when it's when it's needed. You have certain techniques with that. I would say yeah. that. <laughs> I, I look at it kind of two different ways. It, you know, the pressure was on to get through the temporary quickly to to allegedly give the kids permanency. Mm-hmm. And you know, TMC or PMC means permanent managing care, but it doesn't provide the child permanency. It provides mm-hmm. the court system permanency or CPS permanency, yes. but it doesn't do anything for the kids. And when I first, my first PMC review hearing, a new judge, you know, haven't done this, don't have a lot of experience in it. And I said, well, what's going to be involved? Because there were like, you know, 90 cases on the docket. And they said, oh, it won't take long at all. It'll be about 30 minutes. And I said, well, how can I possibly go through 90 cases well, yeah, initially they were going through, in my opinion, going through them. Anyway, I, I just said, no, no, we're going to take time on each case. I want the caseworkers there. By the way, that got CPS very upset. They would send one caseworker for all the PMC cases, and they would read from like a printed sheet using all the initials and acronyms. And yeah, I wanted to know, well, where is the child? How many times have they been moved? I want you know, the parents to know they can be here. One of the things Mike talked about, the charity he's involved in, which is wonderful, reminded me of an article I read several years ago in the Wall Street Journal. And and that is that they are now finding in some of the PMC type cases, they can reach out and sometimes the parents have gotten better. Their lives have changed. Not Absolutely. More, mm-hmm. They have family members who've changed, who've gotten yes. better, or now they're more reluctant to, more open to talking about sometimes parents shut down when cps and in their view maybe the police and and they don't want to mention any family members they don't want to get them in trouble and now you know, so i really think it's important and it should be required that there be an effort to reach out again to family members if the person's in pmc and 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 without a permanent home i mean it's one thing if they're in the same foster home for years but as you know they often bounce from foster home to foster home. Mm-hmm. And although they're supposed to be placed in another home where they don't have to change schools, that doesn't happen. Kids can go to two or three schools in one year. I mean, it's really not good. And so I um, I think it's important that these cases be reviewed. I, I personally am glad that Child Advocates in Houston has started uh, appointing uh, people to those cases. You know, for a long time, they had a policy against it they thought it achieved permanency and their role was over but i think they now realize it's more complicated than that so again just because it's called pmc doesn't mean it's permanent for the child and it, Karina, you mentioned a few minutes ago 
I always had to ask, is this really the right thing for the child? And that should really be what we try to do in every case. Yeah. And, and you know, even in cases where um, you can't, for whatever reason, move kids back in with um, their, their family, maximizing contact with adults and siblings who are going to be in their, the rest of their life is so big. You know, when you were talking earlier, Brandon, about the mentoring that you've done, that's one of the, the that's one of the reasons why so many of these kids become homeless uh, and go into the criminal justice system is because they just they don't have anybody that they can call to borrow ninety bucks to get a flat tire fixed, which means they lose the job at Whataburger, which means they lose their apartment two months later. I mean. That's not an exaggeration. That happens all the time. Exactly. Like, I mean, my my mentee, he will tell you, I'll show my cash app right now to many times. Like, hey, he needed an Uber. He he has a job now. He's doing well. He's um, and it just took a little bit. He thanks me. I like very grateful kid. But and being in college, just because you get free tuition, uh, we'll talk about that once again, um, the benefits. And but how many people in that family they see go to college? Right. How many people understand like you got more expenses than just tuition and just board, and then you're trying to live a life as a collegiate student? It's so much to go into it, and having advice, and you going through something, and you, yeah, it is because like, once again they don't have a parent at that time, and sometimes they try to lean on some family members that may not be always supportive of that. So, I I, I champion mentoring yes. all the time, all especially for men. It, it, it's needed um, because they may not. We have so many children from, especially African American, and going into black. I mean, just boys, and they just need so much support because once they age out, it's not a lot of support for them out there. Other, the state is there, and but they don't like to ask for the help. Sometimes I was just on TikTok. I have live conversations and it was a person reached out. there like, Hey, this kid left their state of Mississippi. They went to Michigan and they have no ID, no birth certificate, anything. I was like, tell them, call the state, tell them they, you know, they have resources there. And I know the first thing was I wanted to get away. And it's, and I've talked to these kids, so many children on a one-on-one level and some of them want to come to court and I've, I've had issues with some attorneys where they didn't want to represent what the kid wanted. And I'm like, no, this child needs to come to court. Even though I'm the, I represent their best interest. You got to say what they want. And I've had some kids very mature. They may have been in your court, <laughs> Judge Schneider. Uh, but I've seen some kids that I'm absolutely impressed with. And I've had numerous kids that I wish we would have got to you sooner. I absolutely yeah. wish you got to you sooner. About 10 years ago, I started a website called myvoiceincourt.org, and I required all of the um, ad litems to give the address of it to their their clients because it outlined what their rights were according to the family code for kids in CPS care, and it encouraged them, regardless of whatever court they were in, even if it wasn't my court, let them know that they had a right to talk to the judge and here's how, and if, and if your caseworker tells you that you can't, that's, that's even more evidence that it's the right thing to do. And the number of kids who would come and visit was just unbelievable. Um, 
And then once they came and I, you know, I almost always had a dog on the bench and I could just say, look, you don't even have to tell anybody why you're coming up. You can say, he told me I could come up and visit his dog. And that was the way they could do it without, you know what I mean? Uh, they, well, he oh, Judge exactly. Schneider told me I could. And, and, uh, you know, there are so many, that's one of my, my big pet peeves is, um, uh, attorneys ad litem who don't advocate for what their kids want. I'm in a case right now. I won't mention the, the court or any of the players, but, um, they're, a client who was the caregiver, the only caregiver of his two girls, and he got kind of cross with the, the court, and the court has said, no visitation. And the ad litem, when we have a guardian ad litem from child advocates who could advocate whatever she thinks is in the best interest, but the ad litem is not advocating for what her client wants is, I want to see my dad. I want to talk to my dad all the time. You guys took my cell phone. I can't do that. And Look, judges know when when an attorney is advocating for something that's not in the best interest, and they and it's just what the the kid wants. But they just—it's a cliche to say these kids deserve to have a voice. But it's it's true, and and not just to have the court and others informed, but just to give the kid a sense of, hey, somebody's listening to me, right. I couldn't agree with you more. You and I have never really discussed this, but I would start going to the Hayes Center the last year I was a judge and, and talk to the kids who were aging out. And I would ask them, you know, tell me, do you think it was wrong that CPS ever got involved in your family? And I was surprised the great majority completely understood why CPS got involved. Yeah. Well, what what is one thing that you really hated about it and to a person, they almost said, I never got to go to court. I never mm -hmm. I hear about this judge, but I never saw the judge. I didn't know who was making these decisions about me. And of course, I never got to say what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's why I have to agree with, again, Judge Schneider completely. The ad litem needs to advocate for what they want. And, and a skilled ad litem can make it very clear to the judge. I don't necessarily agree. My client has asked me to convey to you, or my client has asked me to say this. And then again, an amicus attorney can advocate, you know, for the best interest or, or guard, you know, but really they need to have a voice and they need to be in court. Uh, although that might be a little scary, you know, for everybody, but nevertheless, they need to be there. And uh, I will tell you, and I think it's changed. I hope it has, but in my early days when I'd say, I want the kids here, I got a lot of pushback from CPS. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of pushback. And in fact, sure. sometimes just absolute refusal to bring them. You know, they'd say, well, we had a mix up. Somebody didn't pick them up. But it, but you really, for the child's sake, let them see that, you know, what's going on. And the other, my other pet peeve is so often the kids were never really told all of a sudden, you know, they're not at their parents' home anymore. God, that's got to be disruptive and, and hurtful and they don't know how their parents are doing there's often no real effort to let them speak or communicate with their parents talk about mental health problems you know uh -huh. suddenly you're worried about your, you're five years old and you're worried about your parents and what you're hearing i think is your parents are so bad that we've taken you away from them what does that do to your self-esteem and self-image and so to me, I don't know, I, I, I'm a dreamer some days, just to look at a whole different way, 
you know, your, your parents having some problems or we're getting them help, wouldn't that be a better message? And they still love you and we're going to make sure you get to see them. Um, and again, there, there could be occasions where that's not the right thing, but in the vast majority, just, to, I, I, it's just, yeah, unconscionable almost what kids are not told. Uh, yeah. And, well, and, and so many kids believe they feel like they're responsible often oh, for, for their parents or the situation. So it's all the alienation and the wonder that you, you just talked about. Plus for some of them, especially the older kids, it's Yo. right. Absolutely. And First if of all, I hadn't done this, mom wouldn't have started smoking dope. You know, I was misbehaving. Therefore, that's how mom coped. This is all my fault. You know, that kind of thing. Once again, thank y'all. Thank you, thank you, thank you. When I'm telling you, I'm loving the conversation we're having right here. And I've been nervous by having this, this, this recording, this conversation for some time. But I'm getting very emotional because just knowing that having judges and having that power, having that strong understanding of what these kids experience. And sometimes I used to feel, I had an imposter syndrome, felt like I was crazy making some of the decisions I was making as a caseworker. And because other caseworkers mm -hmm. or other supervisors or the attorney at Lytle wouldn't agree with me, or even a child advocate sometimes, they're like, well, we can't do that, but we should do it. That's what I'm saying. It's not, I know it, it but it's judge don't like that. And unfortunately, I used to be that person. I, it was certain court that I wasn't allowed to come back in. It, was, it wasn't that I wasn't allowed that. I'm going to speak the facts. That right. judge can make that decision after I bring the facts to them. And I'm going to go from it from there. But I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to keep be quiet at all the time. I'm not going to be bullied. And that's something I've seen some judges do. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I, and that was in, in, in attorney's student, that was not in, ineffective for the child. And I, when I, you know, I played the video game sometime. And when I got, when I left, when my kids turned 18, they'll try to reach out to me. And I add them on PlayStation, keep in touch. And they'll be on chats with like three, four other kids in that's in care, still in care at that time, younger. And I wouldn't say anything. I just let them talk. And they would say, I've never seen my attorney a day in my life. Yeah. And they care four or five years. I'm like, what? They'll, they'll know the name, but then there's some names around. And, that's something that once again one I've been admonished in court um been threatened to be held in contempt because I went in the hallway and I let one attorney have it because they directly lied lied like bold face harmful lie what was the point I don't understand and went and told the attorney judge and judge got upset at me I'm like I and that, that's something that I had to move into more of the training aspect when I went to child advocates because I couldn't go to court anymore because I didn't. Too I didn't honest. Yeah, and that's. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm just hearing it. I appreciate because I like. The, and that we kind of. What was some. And I'm going to come back. What was some experiences that you would never forget? Like, what's one that stand out that was most impactful for you in court? Uh, I could I tell you one, um, when I was a lawyer, um, we had a case where, um, I was asked at the last minute to do a jury trial, um, before, uh, this guy had only done a couple of hearings in front of him, um, judge Wren. And, uh, you might, you might remember this, but, uh, it, it ended up being, I wondered if that was the one you were thinking about. <laughs> yes. In fact, I saw dad's attorney this week and, uh, 
uh, congratulate him. And uh, but but it was one of these cases where uh, no no doubt in probably anybody's mind that the mom's parental rights should be uh, terminated. But you had a a dad who wanted to raise his kid. Uh, no doubt, uh, the child was in a wonderful foster home, and it was. I, on one hand, I was kind of looking at the case like, oh, this is a loss for us. But it was really, uh, I think it was Judge Rand who kind of addressed CPS and, and outside of the presence of the jury was like, you know, asking, but why are you trying to terminate his right? What did he do? Um, and one of the reasons that that sticks with me is because even to this day, I see, um, you know, people have stereotypes of what a parent should be. And a lot of folks don't include males as, uh, you know, especially males without uh, adult females in the home raising kids. Yeah. And uh, this guy happened to be black. Um, and unfortunately, I, I that seems to disproportionately happen as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are a lot of people who think, well, I mean, he's a parent, but he's, you know... He's a guy. Why, why would a, why would a single guy who has a kid want to raise that kid? Yeah, and and I remember that case well also because I learned so much. I was still a relatively new judge, and I'm going to praise the lawyer who I guess I appointed to represent uh, the dad. I, I think I can mention him by name. Them saying good things, Rogers yeah. Boudreau. Yes, Rogers taught me a lot. And I will tell you one of the funny things. Oh, uh, not, not this was not funny. No offense to CPS, but somehow he ended up in jail right before the trial, which had to be disturbing to him. Uh, and so we had to get some civilian clothes for him to wear. And to jury, he can't come in wearing that little orange outfit. And so I, I, I think it was to Rogers, and I said, well, you know, I've got some clothes I can bring and. Luckily, Rogers kind of looked at me and said, you know, I, I don't know if you were at the bench. I think you were. I'm not really sure your style and his style are the same. <laughs> That's a gentle way of putting it. Plus, he said, you, your clothes may be a little too big for him. But he, he dressed, which they would have been huge. Uh, he dressed for, for him, what was right for him. And, and we were able to get him appropriate. And I think the jury, he was honest. And I, and I think in his case, he'd never been married to the mother. That's a few strikes against you, I think, in terms of that. But his love of his son, I think, came through. And it was a jury trial. And the jury ruled in his favor pretty wow. decisively. And it wasn't as though they had to. But I just learned a lot. I learned about how to be, I hope, a better judge, uh, how not to judge too quickly. Mm-hmm. And then also the value of um, of a jury, you know, good jury you know, you've got 12 people looking at it. And uh, so at any rate, that, it's funny you'd mentioned that case because I, I remember that vividly. The case I'm most disappointed in myself is a case where the mother um, was struggling. She had a, um, she had a drug problem. She was probably never going to be the, you know, the uh, Betty Crocker kind of mother of the year thing. Um, she was single. Oh my gosh, she worked her program. She was sober. Uh, she was trying so hard. She had a job like at a pizza hut. She had a small apartment and she missed a psychology appointment because it was the same day she had her appointment to go get furniture from the furniture bank. And she knew 
she had to have a furnished apartment to get her children back. And she had a relative who was also not a wealthy man, but he had a a pickup truck. You know, he, he testified. So I ordered CPS to have her, you know, return the children. And they didn't want to return the children to her. And when she arrived, they claimed she didn't have car seats for the children. And so they wouldn't turn the children over. And in fact, I think they called the police and everything. So I, unfortunately, though, Brandon, you mentioned occasionally you'd lose your temper. I kind of really blew up um, that day because I said, you yeah, know, I'm sorry, having car seats. I didn't say I ordered the children turned over to her and CPS didn't. I ended up having to recuse, recuse myself. And I often pray for that woman. I, and I know it went to a good judge. So I hope she got the children back, but I, but I had to recuse myself because I really did. I blew up in the courtroom and, um, and, and I shouldn't have. And, uh, Mm. but I was just, it just, you know, this was a case where the mother did everything. She was poor and she wasn't real and, you know, wasn't well-educated. And then can you imagine the frustration? And she had left messages. I can't make that counseling appointment because I've got it. I've got the furniture bank. And, uh, Anyway, she, uh, anyway, that's just one case I remember and I'm still frustrated by. No, but thank you both, seriously. And I'm hoping for our folks that are listening to this right here. Um, once again, Judge Mike or Michael Schneider, as well as Judge Frank Rand, um, formerly in 315th, as well as the 309th. Um, hope y'all are listening and actually absorbing the feelings that I'm feeling right now as well because actually doing this work for the amount of years that I've done it and still doing it means a lot hearing this from once again leaders in our community okay these are once elected people persons um to you know absolutely be active in making changes in people's lives CPS the decisions that are made just doesn't just affect the child. It doesn't just affect the parent. It affects the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, the grandchildren. It affects the full lineage of the family. And every time I would go into court to, to even make a recommendation, I feel like that weight was on my shoulders. And I always imagine, what does it feel like to be a judge that has that type of weight um, and responsibility to make that decision? Hello, beautiful people. Thank you so much for listening to our child welfare series with Everything Culture. You've just completed the first half of our conversation with our judges, Mike Schneider and Frank Wren. To listen to the second half, make sure you subscribe, like, and share. We greatly appreciate the support that's been shown through Everything Culture. And if you'd like to find more ways to support the podcast, Make sure to go to www.everythingculture.com. Once again, that's everything, A, no I, culture.com. If you're interested in leaving a message, you can contact us at 832-800-3176. Once again, that's 832-800-3176. If you'd like to leave a message on YouTube or leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We'll greatly appreciate that as well. Thank you again. God bless. Peace.